Today's episode of Modern Manhood, part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast. It's the official podcast of the Edmonton Community Foundation. You may already heard a lot about the ECF during my chat with Andrew Paul on the last episode of Modern Manhood. But this week, I really want you to check out his podcast because the one and only George Takei goes to visit them. I mean, come on, it's George Takei. And he gets a chance to talk about his memories of life in a Japanese-American internment camp during World War II, becoming an activist, and coming out in Hollywood. He also gets a chance to answer some questions from Edmontonians. It's a really cool interview, and you should definitely check it out. You can find the Well Endowed Podcast at wellendowedpodcast.com. So that's the wellendowedpodcast.com. Or you can check it out at any place where you get your podcast needs. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Modern Manhood, a podcast dealing with the ever-expanding views of masculinity. I'm your host, Herman Vijegas. The words male feminist comes with a lot of baggage. Feminism, in my eyes, at its core, is a movement for gender equity, in large part through how women are viewed in society. For a long time, women have been looked at in many stereotypical ways which hinder their progress throughout the world. And feminists have long fought for society in general to view women as not only equals, but an important and incredible facet of the world. Now, of course, when I speak about society and the world, I generally speak about men. Now, I don't think there is any reasonable dispute, even though I know some may try, that men have made these issues and ideas and rules to bring women and minority groups down, either to stereotype them or to not allow access to their basic needs. This has been generations of systemic hurt caused for the most part by men. And even though you, and I'm speaking to you, the listener, if, if you're a man, might not consciously bring women down, the understanding that this has been at play for centuries doesn't make you a terrible person. But it does lead you to ask some questions. For instance, where does this leave men? Through the voice of feminism, a lot of men have been starting to ask the question, well, what can I do as a man? And then that leads to how can I help my fellow women, in which understanding of systemic problems lead to a path of the question, how can I help my fellow men? Which may lead you to the academic research of gender theories like Raven Connell or C.J. Pascoe, among others, which then leads to the big question, who am I as a man? This little rabbit hole led me to doing the podcast, but that also leads to men helping other men understand their own masculinity and how it hurts not only women, but other men as well. That exploration can lead you into working for causes that try to turn back the tide of hegemonic masculinity, such things as helping male victims of domestic violence, or helping the homeless, or helping victims of sexual abuse, or helping suicide support line, etc., etc., etc. All these causes help women and help men. But is that feminism at its root cause, if it's not directly helping women? But the biggest problem I have with the tag male feminist is that feminism has become such a catch-all word that people, especially men, don't really understand the core of it. For what purpose are they using that label? Do we have a problem when politicians such as Justin Trudeau or Theresa May call themselves feminist, especially if they back policies in which their root cause are anti-feminist? And the other big one, does feminism truly lead to a liberation of traditional masculinity? Or does it, in its own inherent purpose, just critique masculinity? Therefore, if it just critiques, where does that lead the men who want to find their own masculinity? You know, these are the dangers of these labels. Ali Fogg, a writer for The Guardian and many other publications, has been asking these questions for years. And not only that has worked to push the UK government for a more gender-inclusive language when they talk about issues like violence. He's a person that has been labeled, depending on whatever he's talking about, um, an anti-male feminist or an MRA. 
And he's always tried to do what's right for the men around him, regardless of the label he gets thrown at. And I got a chance to speak with him in the summer, a little after the many terrorist attacks that happened in the UK, which you get a chance to speak about, which is great. And we also get to talk about the dangers of labels, especially on politicians. He's a real joy to talk with, and I really appreciate what he brings. And, you know, we had some problems with the audio, um, especially around with Skype. So, I mean, this interview, it's going to sound, it's a little staticky, but you'll definitely get to hear his voice and you'll definitely get to hear uh, the conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. So please enjoy my conversation all the way from Manchester with journalist Ali Falk. Thank you so much for uh, for being on the show. This is uh, this is kind of an honor for me. I like I I read a lot of the the, the stuff that you that you post on your website um, on your blog and also the 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 articles that you post specifically in the Guardian. Um, so and I've also was very interested in in the AMA that you did in our uh, men's lib, which I thought was fascinating. Um, first of all, what do you, what do you make of that subreddit? I really like it. It's, um, I, I tend not to spend a lot of time on Reddit because I quickly get sucked into other subs and, and kind of it gets a bit way to put it. Um, it's really easy to get sucked into the dark side when you're on Reddit. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I feel I don't really do the men's lib sub the justice that it deserves. Um, but there's, there's always interesting conversations there. And anytime I do find myself uh, uh, dipping a toe into the, the toxic swamp of Reddit, I'll always uh, fly by and have a look and see what you're saying along with everybody else. And I can always almost guarantee an interesting conversation or two. So I, you will catch me lurking occasionally. I have been known to lurk. That's good. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing I like about it is the, the energy there is good. People are, whether or not I dis, uh, agree or disagree with what any one person is saying or what consensus might be on sub at the time, um, people's heart is in the right place and, and they're aiming in the right direction for me. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always yeah prepared to disagree with people in, in good faith. And, yeah. And, uh, that it always works well for me there. Yeah, totally. And I, I, I really agree with you about the conversation there. And I think it's one of the few places on the internet that seems to have a pretty civil conversation. And I know the moderators are pretty good at keeping it civil. Um, to try to make sure that nobody personalizes things or try to say things very off the cuff. Um, and I think you're very good at that too. Like one of the questions I had for you is like, you, <laughs> You tend to get labeled many different labels of whatever whatever space that you're talking about, but you still seem to keep an even an even head or just a just a cool call collected. I'm just saying I'm just I'm just here to either question one side or the other, but I have my opinions too. How do you do that on the internet? That's that's always a curiosity for me. <laughs> I think I got I got really tired of having the same arguments that went round and round in circles. And this is true of, of kind of my behaviour on the internet, on social media, Twitter, on my, on my own blog as well. Um, after a while, you feel like you've had every conversation so often that it's all become a bit ritualised. People are going through the motions. Everybody is saying things that the other side has always heard before. Um, and when you get into those uh, discussions. It's not really about anything constructive anymore. Yeah, uh, it's about point scoring of, over over the other side. Uh, and I just kind of stopped playing. I think um, it began with my interaction with feminism mm -hmm. online when I when the internet was a, a young and naive place. Well, it was never naive <laughs> when the internet was was a young and ambitious uh, place. There was kind of all this. Uh, space opened up to have debates and conversations and discussions and arguments and I genuinely believed it was possible to not so much convince people that they were wrong as convince people that I was right which is a, a slightly different emphasis but often amounts to the same thing in the end um, and then I found that, that whatever I said even when I knew I was right it wasn't actually getting through it wasn't helping um, because it was in the context of an argument and if, for example, somebody writes a blog post that I disagree with, um, I can go and leave 
a thousand words of angry or even even kind of uh, constructive, helpful messages underneath. Um, and it will almost always be taken as an attack if it's, if it's coming from a point of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost impossible to disagree with someone on the internet in a friendly, constructive way. Kind of I, what I tried to do, what I still try to do is build up rather than tear down. I have a disagreement with uh, whether it's a feminist or an MRA or a conservative or a, a, um, a Christian or whoever it might be, <laughs> I find it much more useful to put up my side of the argument and let it let people find it than to try and tear down theirs. Because it never actually works. Your efforts to tear down actually uh, result in people building bigger walls and digging in deeper. Right. And so once you get once you get away from that idea of trying to, to um, you know tear down what you don't like, it becomes much easier to just put forward what, what you do support. Now, of course, I don't remotely practice what I preach on that, and I'm, I'm forever seeing people saying things on Twitter that I disagree with and jumping in and saying, whoa, you're wrong, obviously. <laughs> uh, but quickly, within seconds or minutes or uh, <laughs> 24 hours tops, uh, I'll kind of catch myself on or realise what I'm doing and say, okay, you know, back away, we're not actually getting anywhere. Um, and I often realise that when I am actively arguing with someone on Twitter, it's not because I'm trying to move the debate forward. It is actually because I'm annoyed with them or angry with them and, and I'm working through my own personal demons and, and whatever history I might have with that other uh, anonymous collection of pixels on the internet. <laughs> uh, and, and, kind of one, and when you when you know you're doing that, it's so, <laughs> sometimes it's okay. That's kind of what you need to do. And, and part of being on the internet is you, you get to do that. Uh, but you also have to, to realise that it's not necessarily always the, the best use of your time. Um, there's a, a blog post that I wrote for Ahead of International Men's Day a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, please talk about um, that one. I basically said that whatever you do, or whatever I do on International Men's Day, um, I'm not going to have arguments about the the need or the purpose for International Men's Day. Um, I will talk about the issues that I want to talk about relating to men. I will amplify voices that I think need to be amplified. I will highlight issues that need to be talked about. But what I won't do, spend the day fielding really tired and and, uh, barbs and... You know, negative, negative energy, because you know, from from where my politics are, International Men's Day is something important and valuable, and it's twenty four hours within the space of a year uh, when we do actually have a window to talk about some of the things that that I want to raise, and I'm not going to waste it on completely um, pointless arguments. And I, I made up a little, um, I think. Like a meme card, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> you, you young people, your interweb things. Yeah. Um, it was a, 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 an old picture of a Victorian gentleman um, writing a letter, uh, and I put a little caption on it that I think said something like, um, "Dear sir or madam, thank you for your inter- uh, invitation to an internet argument. Unfortunately, I have something." less degrading, uh, uh, pointless, and corrosive to attend to right now, <laughs> but do please continue in my absence. And I, I, I've kept that, and I still like, post it occasionally when people are coming at me on Twitter, like, demanding an argument. Uh, I think everyone needs that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. I think I, I kind of want people to pick up on that, that little thing and use it. It's your fly, my pretty fly. I want it to be out there in the world. <laughs> totally. I, I, I really... Yeah. I really appreciate that, and I really um, I love the article that you post. Well, the the blog post that you posted out about International Men's Day because it is, you know, it's still kind of a divisive topic about celebrating or not celebrating, just raising awareness around issues of men. You know, like I consider myself part of the the men's sector in Canada, or me in Edmonton at least. It is something that we kind of have to fight about, or we're gonna have to fight like either with with within outside of the sexual sector or even within as well. I think even within we're having these kind of different discussions as to how we should approach either issues that men are facing or um, mental health issues or, you know, our, um, in Alberta, our suicide rate has gone increasingly high in regards to with men. And um, so it is something that we do have to 
work with, but there's still kind of this polos to um, being this either feminist organization or proclaiming to either feminist theories. And I, I have I have some issues with that. I want your ideas um, around like this this um, understanding of either of being a male feminist because I know you've had some thoughts about this feminism for me. And everybody has their own definition. I'm certainly not seeking to impose the definition on anyone else, yes. least of all any women listening. No, absolutely. Um, for me, feminism works best as a verb, not a noun, or an adjective, not a noun. I don't really know whether I'm a feminist or not, and I really don't care whether I'm a feminist or not. And if I say I am a feminist, then that will mean something entirely different to the person who hears me say I am a feminist who might have a completely different interpretation of what that word means. Uh, so I tend to shy away from uh, identifying, well, no, I, I absolutely point blank refuse to identify myself um, in relation to feminism. That's not, well, I, I hope it's not a cop-out. Um, I'm absolutely happy uh, and, and usually vaguely flattered if somebody describes something that I've written, something I've said as being feminist. Um, if people describe something I, I say or write or do as being anti-feminist, I might wonder why, because it's never actually my intention, but equally, if, if, if they feel it's contradictory to their vision of feminism, then fine. What I, I long got over and really worked very, very hard to get away from is the label being used as a way to police ideas. When you're when you're a man, you have got a real problem in saying I am a I am a feminist and or I am a feminist but you will always risk being laughed out of whichever room you happen to be in. And, and to be honest, you should fear being laughed out of any mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. room. So if it by by uh, stepping away from from that concern as to whether I, I am or I'm not a feminist and whether what I am writing about is or is not a feminist, it doesn't change any of my opinions in any way. I would worry if I thought I couldn't make a particular argument that I thought was correct because somebody was going to say this isn't appropriate feminism. You know, this, this is, you've got this wrong. You're not allowed to have this opinion if you're a feminist. Yeah, if I'm not allowed to have that opinion because I'm a feminist, then I'm not a feminist. You know, the, the right. opinion comes first, and it, and it should do. What I will say, what I will say very happily and, uh, and quite proudly is that an awful lot of my ideas and my thinking and, and my views on, on gender politics have been formed by reading feminist literature and theory and, and novels and blogs and and, and 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 conversations you know the long 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 conversations with good feminists that i've known in my life for for whom i'm you know to whom i'm all very grateful it used to be something that i spent a lot of time worrying about <laughs> whether my opinions were right or not and you know from a from a feminist point you know whether they were correct feminism when you're a man and you're concerns include or are focused on issues affecting men and boys. It's very difficult to do that from a, a dogmatic feminist position because feminism, as I understand it, what I, what I, the best definition that I could come up with is that feminism is a, a movement by women, for women, led by women, uh, and I'm not saying that men can't be feminists, and if men want to be feminists, then good luck to them, and, and yeah, uh, I, I hope they make themselves useful. But it's not my place mm-hmm. to tell anyone what feminism should be, and I don't think the concerns of feminism should include what's right for men and boys. As soon as feminists are saying, well, can we advocate this policy, uh, or is this unfair to men, then they're not doing their jobs as feminism. They, they've kind of they've, they've diverted their post a little. Where my politics have got to in terms of gender over the last uh, ooh, kind of ten years or so, I'll I'll raise a theoretical concept now that I use a lot. Which I've moved away from the idea of gender politics to the idea of gender inclusive politics. Mm-hmm. And what that what that means to me 
is that there are all kinds of areas of social policy in particular, but, but you know, political political policy making of, of all sorts, where women have absolutely valid and important and, and often urgent issues and, and concerns and, and things to deal with. Feminism should get on with doing those. That then leaves a space for where men's issues come in. Mm-hmm. If you approach men's issues from a feminist point of view, then I think what you have to do is say, how can we uh, resolve the problems men are facing from a female perspective? Because that's what feminism should be about. And that doesn't necessarily lead you to the best conclusions for, for men and boys in need. However, if you say, okay, how can we uh, how can we design policies, theoretical approaches, um, government policies, charity work, whatever, in campaigning uh, for women and for men, if you approach it from what I think of being a, a decent, progressive, healthy perspective, what you come out with are policies that are entirely compatible between what's best for men and what's best for women. Because actually, when you dig into it, you find that men and women's interests very largely dovetail. Um, I, I don't believe in zero politics, but I also don't believe in fundamental conflict between gender groupings and, and you know, male, female, and everything in between. In, in practice, what that means is you have policies designed around, for example, sexual violence. What support do people need when they've been a victim of sexual violence and what policies do we need to prevent sexual violence? Mm-hmm. Now, by most measures, you'll find a, a significant majority of the victims of most kinds of types of sexual crime are women, women and girls, um, but there is a significant minority, and I don't care about this. I, you know, I don't care whether it's ten percent or thirty yeah. percent. Or, the numbers know, don't really matter. It, it, it's a it's a minority of victims, which, when you talk about raw numbers, it's a very 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 large number of men who've been badly affected. So, how do we design policies that will help all survivors of sexual violence? Well, I think you need one set of policies that are relevant and most suitable uh, to the needs. Of female survivors and you need often a different set of policies for male survivors now sometimes a lot of the time they will end up looking quite similar in a lot of respects the needs will be the same yeah, both need support and understanding and they need access to counseling and medical help and all the rest of it mm-hmm. uh, but the form they take might look quite different and most importantly the ownership of each will feel quite differently so i work very closely with male survivors groups and what they do is not so different to what women's aid or rape crisis feminist uh women's survivors groups will do um it's the same kind of thing but it's male turf, if you like, and men feel comfortable there. It's it's a space and both physically and, and um, ideologically, it's a space that's been opened up by men in need, for men in need, uh, to look after and meet their own needs. Absolutely, um, yeah. without, necessar- without necessarily worrying about what female survivors are doing. Um, and I think that's a much healthier approach. And what I'd really like is for us to get away from the idea that uh, male survivors are kind of a tacked on, but, but fem- feminists are genuinely and with good reason concerned about how uh, the concerns for male survivors impact upon and often undermine what they're trying to do with women. Yes. Um, when, but what we do need is for there to be a space where you know women can, can talk about women, but the men are over at the other side saying, yeah, actually, well, Good luck to you. <laughs> we wish you well, and we'll wish you well, and we'll meet you up, meet up at conferences several times a year, and um, and all be friends. But but here we are over here doing our thing, and and what that calls for, where there's a stumbling, yeah, it, it requires policy. It requires policymakers to acknowledge that, and to be prepared to work with it. The I, I don't know what the situation is in Canada, but the big problem we've got in the UK government, the, the British Home Office is that they have a categorization of crime 
called Violence Against Women and Girls. Yeah. Uh, and that is a theoretical construct, which means all intimate sexual crimes of power and, and involving gender, if you like. And that includes male victims. So, for example, if charity that is working with male survivors of, of sexual violence or domestic abuse wants to apply for funding to the UK government, they apply to a fund that's called the Women and Girls, the Violence Against Women and Girls Intervention Fund. And when the uh, Crown Prosecution Service, you know, they, they will publish annual reports on violence against women and girls. And within that, they include all the male victims of domestic violence, all the male victims of, of sexual violence, trafficking, um, pornography-related offences, and, and prostitution-related offences, all, all of these things. Um, so the male, male survivors, often having a lot of issues with relation to their masculinity and gender roles and all the rest of it, um, these people are told by the UK government that they are women and girls. Mm. Uh, and that that is the complete mess. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not good for anyone, and it's particularly it's really not good for the women and girls sector because they they are told that they are being given you know, eighty million pounds over five years to fund services to prevent violence against women and girls and support survivors, and then they find that yeah you know, a bit of money is being shaved off that siphoned off that to, to support male victims correct, as well. Yeah. There needs to be a framework with yeah. which. Uh, yeah, and there needs to be a suitable and appropriate framework with which male male survivors can get um, support to. So that idea of gender inclusive policies does it apply to all genders? And I think there's a really important theoretical thing, which is for years people, particularly in the men's uh, abuse sector, would call for gender neutral policies. Mm-hmm. And they were fought tooth and nail by the feminist sector, who who I think quite rightly have said, but um, you know, these crimes are not gender neutral. They're absolutely, they're rancid with gender right. <laughs> in, in all sorts of ways. The likes of in charities like Women's Aid and Rape Crisis, the feminist charities in, in this country have fought long and hard against gender neutral policies. Mm-hmm. And, and what we are trying to do now, the charities that I'm involved in, campaigners, and something called the, the Men and Boys Coalition in the UK, uh, we are now campaigning for on the basis of what we want is gender inclusive policies, not gender neutral. So that allows violence against women and girls to be called what it is, addressed as what it is, but at the same time having policies that are uh, also meeting the needs of, of male survivors too. Um, and I, can, I think that's the way forward. Um, yeah. And we, uh, most of my, my writing at the moment, my work, my political activism is geared to... to pushing that as a, as a way of thinking about these things. You, you brought up a lot of topics in that one. So I was like, as soon as you were talking about it, I have questions, <laughs> questions, questions. Um, but yeah. no, I, I really appreciate what you've said specifically about gender inclusive uh, policies. Cause um, you know, I, the research that I do um, here over here in Canada, um, you know, the university of Calgary, uh, their social group program has a, has a program called shift and it's called shift uh, for prevention of violence against women. Um, but it does specifically talk about men and it specifically um talks about bringing bringing uh, these policies and men to the table and how sometimes these policies are made and they're very wishy-washy and they don't really do a whole lot or they're just more of an awareness campaign or and that's it there's no real actual policies to help um survivors um to help um bring actual policies that that men are have them be a part of the solution and not just this separate entity that that really needs to uh, work aside. So I know that Shift has been um, a, a prominent feature in trying to support that kind of what you're calling gender inclusive policies. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. That hockey is back finally, and for Alberta, it's kind of an exciting year. You know, Edmonton and Calgary both have really good teams, and there's a lot of hope in the air. ATB has helped sponsor hockey in Alberta from Pee Wee all the way up to the pros, and they have been a big boost to a lot of teams and leagues. They also helped encourage the game at all levels. So this is why I support ATV. You know, I love hockey, and I know a lot of Albertans love hockey as well. So if you want to check out more of what ATB can do for you, check out atb.com slash listen. 
That's once again, atb.com slash listen. You know, going back to what you talked about, uh, male feminist, Justin Trudeau here in Canada is a, a, a vocal male feminist. Do you think that that can create a problem in itself as a politician, especially a prime minister, saying that they're a male feminist? I think when I look at the people who are running the government of most of the developed countries on earth at the moment, I'm not going to worry too much about Justin Trudeau's feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, we, I'll, okay, I'll tell you a little story. There's a, um, a kind of liberal chat show, late night, um, late, late night news discussion show called The Last Leg mm-hmm. in the UK. Uh, which is hosted by an Australian comic called Adam Hills and a couple of sidekicks. Uh, and, and the main focus is actually on, on disability. The, uh, two of the three hosts have uh, uh, disabilities, and they began with that focus, and they've kind of since moved on. And it's all kind of quite right on and, and liberal, and, and they're always kind of like advocating hugging your enemies, that kind of thing. <laughs> and anyway, a couple, a couple of months ago, they got really excited about something Justin Trudeau had done. I can't remember. And and basically... Something they, about they, a socks? They, is it about, about, is it, was it about a socks? Because that's all I hear about, is about a socks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I think it was before the socks. It was before the rainbow socks. It was a couple of months back. Uh, but he'd, he'd said something really quite you know, endearingly lefty liberal in, right. in a nice kind of way and and they went they went on this big long kind of tongue-in-cheek but, but uh not entirely tirade about how every country needed a justin trudeau and, and he was the politician of the whole world and you know i think they just elected they were talking about donald trump all the time like, <laughs> why, why can't why can't justin trudeau be the leader of the world instead of <laughs> and that was the kind of thing he's actually perfect he's like the perfect man isn't he David, do you want to tell us something? <laughs> well, I mean, why can't we have him ruling the world? I, that picture looks like a Shaw advert with those two guys. What's going, this tattoo? How does he smell so fresh? What's this? His tattoo. What's I can tell you. David, this? that's not actually him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin Trudeau was asked who should play him in the story of his life. He said Meryl Streep. <laughs> and when Donald Trump was elected last week, Trudeau opened the border to Mexicans without visas. I mean, they've got to get through America first, but the border's open. <laughs> I'm not saying this guy's our saviour. His birthday is actually December the 25th. Do you know that stalking is illegal? I don't care. From now on, my new motto in life is going to be WWJTD. What would Justin Trudeau do? Um, within about three days of that, there was some really horrible story came out about... Um, Indigenous Canadian people, I can't remember what it was, but there was something Trudeau's government had done that was completely illiberal and horrible, and I just thought, as soon as you build up these characters as being something more than they're not, you're almost guaranteed they're going to fall in their face within a matter of hours, oh, if not weeks. 100%, yes, absolutely. I think that's the problem that I have sometimes with Justin Trudeau. Like, I, I see this in Canada... Uh, specifically where, you know, um, indigenous murdered women have, has, is a big topic here in Canada. Uh, and this is missing and murdered women. Sorry. Um, yeah. it is something that, um, you know, I think he, he talks a good game. <laughs> I don't think he walks it as well as he should. The inquiry is placing people in harm's way. It is causing crisis and harm in our communities. No one from the National Inquiry has called or contacted us. They take the information and leave with no aftercare. This is not trauma-informed. So I ask, a hundred years from now, will you be looked at as a Prime Minister who changed the course of Canada's relationship with Indigenous people? Or will you be seen as yet another politician in the very long list of politicians who simply peddled in the age-old craft of empty promises? I don't know. I feel sometimes when people say that they're male feminist, um, it, it's kind of a ploy to get a little bit of a, of a, you know, um, a shoulder rub and just like a like a, you're doing a good job, sir. Yeah. And <laughs> it's kind of like a, it seems like it's like a facade. I mean, there was, there was a little there was a, a phase in, in this country a few years ago when there was a, a feminist charity called the Fawcett Society here that produced T-shirts called "This Is What a Feminist Looks Like," and they then called up all the uh, different party leaders at the time and asked them all to, to be photographed wearing this T-shirt saying this is what a feminist looked like. 
I think I, I just remember thinking that there were these that I, I can't remember who, but there was a couple of really quite nasty right wing. I think even Theresa May, who's as you probably know, Theresa right May, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they got her wearing a "This Is What a Feminist" T-shirt, Lisa, and at that time she was our home secretary, our internal affairs, um, and she was responsible for rounding up female illegal migrants and, and locking them up in in a detention centre. Uh, she was sending vans around with big kind of shop. Uh, uh, phone phone a hotline to report an illegal immigrant in your neighbourhood, mm. and I kind of thought, you know, if she's a feminist, why would anyone want to be? Yeah, <laughs> uh, totally. I think politicians uh, politicians messing with that stuff is is. I I don't know who it helps, um, but at the same time, there's absolutely no way I'm gonna I'm gonna tell anybody that they can't identify in, in that way. And as I said earlier, I'm happier probably. Uh, that we've got the occasional uh, kind of liberal, wet, hypocritical Justin Trudeau uh, than all the like, absolutely appalling right-wing. Yeah, 100%. They're running most of the other countries. So. Yeah, so no, that's totally. I'd rather for Justin Trudeau much. than over some other people. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, going into your, uh, into your work in, um, in the UK, I actually wanted to, to ask you... Um, because from afar, we see a lot of, um, you know, terrorism that goes on in the UK. And it's really sad. And it's really, um, you know, stuff that's going on there. I, I feel it could be very divisive. And, like, I know we see it in Canada. We see it from the US. And now we see it in the UK. We're concerned now that something, if a, a terrorist attack happens in Canada, how divisive um, our country is going to become. And I can see the roots of it happening. Um, do you think this division this between... Um, uh, either anti-immigrant uh, like comments or ideas, does that bring along the the messages of like we need to strengthen our traditional masculinity? I don't know about that, but I'm in I'm in Manchester. It was at Manchester Arena where I'd been with my own kids. I stood in the exact spot where that bomb went off, and most people in Manchester because it's it's a you know right in the middle of centre and uh, it's where everything goes on. You know, we've all been there. We've all we've all kind of felt very close to that when when those people, and particularly young children, died. We you know we've all been there with our kids. Yeah, um, And in the immediate aftermath, kind of what we expected was a kind of outpouring of anger and revenge and hatred, and the response almost. I mean, I can't say without exception, because, you know, there were exceptions, but to to a huge, overwhelming extent, um, the response was one incredibly constructive. It was a refusal to let hatred win. Uh, and I think the people of Manchester framed what happened as being hatred and division and violence against love and decency. Mm-hmm. And which side of that divide do you want to be on? Mm-hmm. Not not which side of the Muslim versus Western imperialist who became socialism, capitalism, conservative, anything else. But perhaps my favourite reaction of all came from this man who was in a restaurant and witnessed the attacks firsthand. He actually went back to that restaurant this morning to try and pay his bill and tip for staff. And when a reporter asked whether he was worried about his safety, this was his incredible response. We're not going to let these people win. And I keep saying, if me having a gin and tonic with my friends, flirting with handsome men, hanging out with brilliant women, is what offends these people so much, I'm going to do it more, not less. Because that's what makes London so great. Fuck yeah it is. Fuck yes it is. And I, I hope, I sincerely hope that that guy is out on the town tonight, pounding down gin and tonics and flirting with every man he sees. To you, sir, I say this. Cheers. And one of the things that happened when we were uh, tweeting and blogging and writing articles out a, a piece in The Guardian in a week or two after, we got lots and lots and lots of active hate mail. You know, those of us actually in Manchester got um, really quite hateful tweets, mostly from the, uh, the red states of the USA, <laughs> say uh, that, that were hating us for not hating Muslims. 
you know, they were really, really disappointed in us and they were wishing further atrocities upon us. <sighs> um, yeah. Because because we were we were standing shoulder to shoulder with our Muslim neighbours. It did not occur to us to, to turn our hatred in a blanket way upon the Muslim community next to us. The, the, the reaction was very much the opposite. Um, and I actually took an enormous amount of heart from the aftermath, the, the, the reaction here in Manchester, and actually, to be fair, across across the UK, um, including something very similar happened in, in London. Um, and to their credit, the people of London reacted in a very similar way. You yeah, know, yeah. Or two after the Manchester bomb. Um, so... I would have shared your concerns. I mean, I, I still do share your concerns to a large extent about the um, this kind of atrocity, hardening hearts, and uh, you, you talked about hardening masculinity. Um, in practice, the reality is, I think it's gone the other way. Mm, okay. Okay. I, I, I think people have, have, have reacted really well. And, and to be brutally honest about it, I think if ever we as a, a, a world, a society, yeah, uh, supranational community. Uh, if we're ever going to defeat terrorism, that is how we will do it. Here in Britain, I, I can't even begin to explain what a strange year or two it's been politically. Um, God, I would our imagine. Politics, <laughs> you, you know that uh, that gif that does the round, the, the meme on Twitter of a, a burning dumpster, a skip fire. That is basically what British British politics has felt like, you know, yeah. particularly for the last year, uh, but it's been brewing up for, for a little while. So in amongst all of that, um, there's a lot of really scary stuff. But at the same time, people have pulled in other directions as well. Um, and we've, we've got the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon going on here, which yeah. I won't bore you to it. I'm... I'm Anyone who follows me on Twitter or, or on the blog will know I'm very much on board with. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it will play up in the end. It, it may end well. It's likely to all end horribly badly because everything in politics. Yeah, lately, in my But at least it does give us hope. And I think what, what we've found, um, and what I've seen in a lot of ways, and this is coming from the, the political movements, but also I think from, from cultural things like the reaction of, of the people of Manchester to the you know, terrorist atrocity, um, there's there are reasons to have hope. I mean, there's a lot of people believe that another world is possible. A lot of people have, have kind of abandoned the kind of defeatism that seemed to be around for a good 10, 20 years, uh, where it didn't matter what you do, everything was always going to get worse. Yeah, but I think people have, have kind of said, no, we're, we're just not going to... We, we've had enough of that narrative. We don't, we don't want to hear that anymore. We, we, we want to believe. We want to believe another world is possible. We want to believe things can be better. We want to believe things can be different. And, and things are moving forward. So, yeah. And I think gender is part of that, too. I mean, I'll... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that gives me enormous hope for the future is looking at my uh, well, my, my children. My older son's fifteen. Uh, he's a teenage boy. He goes to a, a, a inner city state school uh, with all the, the socio demographics and, and uh, social problems and so on you'd expect with right. that. Um, and yet, he's he's he and his friends. Now, it's not just him. Are so much more. Uh, progressively minded and liberal and, and thoughtful and sensitive and in touch with their uh, emotions and their sexuality and their sensitivity uh, than my generation was. I mean, I'm, I'm quite an old dad. I'm, I'm, I'm 50 this year, so I, I was mm. at high school between 1978 and 1985, that kind of time. Right. Uh, and back then, it was brutal. You know, yeah. my generation. My generation was really quite damaged and damaging uh, and were absolutely full of hate and, and full of prejudice and, and full of you know, nasty stuff, which I think my I, my kids' generations are managing to get away from. It's not gone. They haven't lost it. And, and the, the, the existence of the alt-right and, and various things on Reddit in particular. Yeah, I know. To come for a circle, yeah. That battle is far from one. Um, but, but as a little example, it's a beautiful little thing happened the other day. Uh, my partner was uh, cleaning out my son's clothes to put them in the washing machine, and she found a broken fragment of plastic, and it had actually uh, broken off a, a ruler, you know, which is just 
draw lines with in, in school. Um, and it said something about transgender hate crime on it. And Felix said, uh, sorry, Claire said to my son, uh, you know, what's this? Where did this come from? I said, oh, it, it broke off a ruler that my friend was using in physics. Said, oh, how did your friend have it in physics? Said, oh, all the science department have these uh, hate crime rulers uh, that say no to racism, no to homophobia, no to transphobia, hmm. whatever else. Uh, and whenever a child asks to borrow a ruler, this is what they get given by the school. Uh, and there's a tiny little minor detail, and I know these things happen, but hmm. the thought that you know, my generation could have ever had the school even acknowledging that you know, trans people existed, never mind that transphobia was a problem that had to be confronted, and standing with a zero-tolerance policy. My son actually once uh, got, he got a suspension at school because he was talking to his trans friends I, I think they were talking about people who pray the gay away, and they were having quite a sophisticated, intelligent conversation for a couple of 14-year-olds with a couple <laughs> okay. of people, one, one of whom is a, a trans boy. Um, and the teacher thought that my son was, was using inappropriate language and was being bullying and came down on him like a ton of bricks and gave him a, a detention. Uh, and, and bless him, my lad said, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't put up too much of a fight because it would have looked like I was like being part of the problem. Yeah. So he just kind of explained yeah, his friend knew that he, he hadn't said anything wrong. And just kind of that consciousness, that, that wow. awareness in in a, a really quite uh, troubled inner city school. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, by no means unusual, that, that's kind of par for the course now. Wow. Um, that gives me so much, so much hope for the future. No um, and, 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 yeah, and Canada can elect Justin Trudeau. You know, it's like... <laughs> There's a lot of things. To do. <laughs> I having Justin Trudeau is and like, and even just having this conversation, like that, I am uh, not even allowed to. Like this conversation can be done, and you know, like doing something like this podcast, or even having a subreddit like Men's Live, and just being as a space and people that accept it, and just I think we are progressing. I I totally agree with you, and I think you're right. Like the next generation is. We'll progress even further, and and I absolutely see it with the with the youth of today. You know, I I work in a lot of schools, middle schools, and I do see it like that. The kids are are prepared, while the the adults are the ones that that are not yet, <laughs> which is <Yeah>. fascinating. <laughs> you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I, I I thank you so much for being for uh for you know allowing us to do this. Um, I just have one last question. This is a question that I always ask to all the guests that I have. What's one piece of advice that you would give uh, to other males or something that, you, uh, that you've taken in that, that has helped you out in your own life? You know what? I, I actually had a prepared answer for this when, before we started. I kind of changed my mind about it. No, 100%. <laughs> uh, partly because we've already covered. Uh, the, 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 the first one is I don't take advice from old parts like Ali Ford. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the most important one. Uh, yeah, I think and it, it, allowing for who your leadership, your leadership, your reader, readership, your listenership—that's the word of the department. Yeah. Allowing for for who your listeners are. Um, I think my advice would be: uh, don't worry about what people think you are. Worry about what you do. Yeah, don't don't worry about how people are labeling you or identifying you or pigeonholing you. Uh, just do the right thing. Yeah, and I, it'll be okay. Is that that that's quite that's, that's bland enough? I love I'm it. Totally anodyne for that kind of question. <laughs> I love it. It's simple, but it totally works. Um, by the way, are you going to be excited for for Man City this year? How are you feeling about those thoughts about about your team this year? Uh, I really want us to succeed without spending all the money that we've got because it's uh, every summer we go out and we spend another 150 million on, on new players and I would really love the, the old guard to come through and win without any of our new transfers really playing at all. Uh, but the, the, I tell you what, English football, the, the premiership, uh, is just amazing at the moment. I mean, I, I'm it a is. big sports fan of, of all sorts. 
and I follow various different sports to a greater or lesser extent, but I've never known a, a more competitive competition than the English Premiership. And there's, you know, we used to say there were four teams that could win it, and then Leicester City came along from nowhere a couple of years ago <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and just blew the whole world of football apart. And now you kind of think that absolutely anything can happen. But City fans absolutely love being the underdog, and we, we're quite happy when things aren't going right. Uh, and if we <laughs> won every game and won the Premiership by like 20 points, then we'd actually be secretly quite disappointed <laughs> and, and have a few ventures along the way. What it's all about. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> well, well, you know what? Like, I, I'm an Arsenal fan, and I, you know, I have this problem as well too. So <laughs> it's like I want. I always curious. I'm like, what happens to this generation if Arsenal ever wins? Like, they're they're, they're done complaining. <laughs> I have to say, I, I really. I, I, I like the way Arsenal play football, and I really like a lot of their players. But I kind of quite like when Arsenal do badly because their fans are hilarious. Yeah, they sure are. Um, we sure are. I have to identify that. To listen to whinge when they lose, it just it, it makes my weekend. Yeah. Uh, you're not really making me miss the football season. If I'm going to go away and count the days. <laughs> Ali, thank you so much for this conversation. This was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I, I was so happy. I've loved it. It's flown by and I hope you can find something useful. And hi to all your readers in Canada and around the world. So I'm happy to note that the Premier League season has already begun and Ali's team, Manchester City, is at the top of the table, you know, fighting alongside uh, the other Manchester team. So I hope he's a happy man right now. (laughs) He's doing better than my team. That's all I know. (laughs) I would also encourage you to check out Ali's fight with the UK government in the role of mislabeling male victims of abuse over at his blog, which I will post in the show notes. I would also encourage you while you're there to check out one of his latest posts about stopping men being violent through the lens of gender theorist Raven Connell. So asking instead the question, why are men so violent? He asked the question, why does society value violent men? which also makes it hard for men to walk away from violence. You can check it out on the show notes. Before we leave, I wanted to mention that I will be giving a talk about fatherhood and its links to mental health at the Rad Dads event on October 18th at the Dirkbag Cafe right behind McEwen University. You'll be able to do some rock climbing, get some great beer, and chill out with some amazing dads. I would love to see you there. I also want for you to check out my little love note to Edmonton, the Oilers, and my immigrant life over in Canada. Um, you can check that out over at the Fourth Line Podcast blog. And you can always find me at Modern Man Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can email me at modernmanhoodpodcast at gmail.com. I read everything that you send me and I'll try to respond when I can. I hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you next time on Modern Manhood, which is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV.